Welcome to LOA Today. Walt Thiessen and Life Coach Cindy Chavez here. Today is Wednesday, August the 29th, 2018, 8 a.m. Eastern Time, your first daily dose of happy for the day. And uh, we're going to try to get you off to that happy start on this Wednesday, often called Hump Day. I'm still not quite sure why, but I do know. I think I, I do know. I mean, it's like halfway through, so you, like you're over the hump. But I, I, I just think we need a more flattering name for Wednesday. I mean, <laughs> Mondays, Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays get really bad raps, right? Mondays are like, oh, this is the start of the work week. Oh, I don't want to have to deal with it. All the th- bad things happen. Well, that's not a good start for the week. And then Tuesday is like the extension of Monday, right? It doesn't even get its own identity. It's like, oh, it's just what comes after Monday. Wednesday's hump day, which is supposedly better, but it's only marginally better. It's like only yeah, it's a little just bit like, better. It's like, oh, we're fi- we finally made it to Yeah, Wednesday. right. We're, we're, we're only halfway done with the suffering. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gee, Willikers. So, yeah, we're looking for a better identity for Wednesday, and, and that's going to be our endeavor for today. We're going to we're going to try to find a better reason for Wednesday. <laughs> well, you know, around here we call Thursday Friday Eve. That's a good one. That's good. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it still has a little bit of a negative, of uh, you know, a, a twist to it or, or a, an association, but it's an improvement, right? Because the idea is focus on what you like, and we like weekends, so that's a good part. That's good, right? Yeah, exactly. Plus, I always, you know, I always. I realize when you work for someone and someone's giving you your assignments or whatever, you can't always do this, but I think we still have some control. Well, we have lots of control over how we respond and react and feel about things. Um, But to whatever degree you have control over your own calendar and schedule and day, I always attempted to make Monday really fun Mm. just to break out of that whole, oh, it's Monday. I didn't want to do that. I was like, you know, we really set ourselves up because there's going to be a Monday every week. That's true. And so if we've already decided in advance that just Monday is just a drag, then we're setting ourselves up to have, you know, four or five of those every month at least. So I just decided Monday would be light schedule. It would be, I would do things I liked on Monday, make Monday fun. And we all know what the what out of that mindset, right? We all, and we all know what the uh, uh, consequences are if we don't make that change because what we focus on predominantly is what we get into our lives. So focus on money negatively. Guess what we get? We get negativity. It's a pretty yeah, direct connection. So I, I just didn't want to go to you know. It's like I didn't want to go to bed on Sunday night saying, "Oh, tomorrow's Monday," and then waking up on Monday morning. Well, it's Monday. You know, it's like right. there's just no reason for that. And so I think it's important to think about these things consciously and then make the changes we can make so that it's, we have a different experience than that. I agree with you. Actually, that ties into what I was telling you about before the show. Um, last Friday, Linda Armstrong did a, a, a session with me, one of the kinds of sessions she does in her coaching practice, um, a sort of energy work kind of a thing. And we did a podcast about it Friday afternoon. One of the things that she was telling me during that session was that I'm much more in tune with my inner being than I realized. And I've had a lot of people tell me that, actually. Um, but she was like the latest in the long line of people telling me this. And, you know, I, as usual, I was asking questions because I've never really been able to get a handle on how to bring it into my direct conscious control, like, you know, being able to receive information and have it come through clearly and I understand it and I know what to do with it. Because most of the time, right. anything that I get, anything, it's like, it, it, it's like it's you know spoken in in Myanmar or something. You know, it's, it's like I have no idea what the message is. So, she was encouraging me. Well, just keep tapping in anyway. And she gave me some ideas on how I do that. And don't worry about the results. Just keep going after it. So that's what I was doing. And last night in the middle of the night, I woke up and really in need of having that kind of connection of, of getting uh, information from my better half. <laughs> um, and in that uh-huh. in that desire, I I ended up trying to do some of the things she talked about. And one of the things that I focused on was simply just putting a message out and getting a message back. You know, yes, no questions, that kind of thing. And wasn't really getting very far. And it did have one positive benefit. It actually put me to sleep. So I went back to sleep, woke up this morning and wanted to go after it again. So I was going after it again. And I realized that all along, I, I get some kind of message, some kind of thing to receive while I'm expressing my thought. And I've always been very annoyed by that because I can 
think and save or I can listen. I can't do both at the same time. I've never known anyone who could. You can either do one or you can do the other. So <clears throat> here I am getting these messages and it's in the middle of me trying to finish my message. Well, maybe people in the non-physical world, maybe because they're expressing vibrationally, it's just all instantaneous, so it's no big deal. But here in the physical world, we have to talk you know, in sentences that take time to express themselves. And we like to have <laughs> pauses between them so that we can follow each other while we're conversing. Right. So I, I actually had a little chat with my inner being say, look, stop answering the question until I ask it. I want to finish asking the question. Then you can answer it, and then I can understand your answer. Well, you know, what's interesting is that since this is you talking to your inner being, it's a really good indication that, well, we know this is true, but it's a good proof that you have all the answers already. Yeah, I just In can't fact, understand them. You're by yourself trying to spit them all out before <laughs> you even get the Exactly. <laughs> so I, I think what we, what we really have here isn't so much a, a, a receiving issue. It's a timing issue. <laughs> <laughs> timing is everything. Timing is everything. <laughs> so that's as far as I've gotten. I'll, I'll, of course, let people know what happens as this whole experiment progresses. But I figured... Now, so I thought I heard you say the word tapping. Are you doing EFT? Um, I, if I said tapping, it was accidental. <laughs> uh, okay. I, I, I don't actually engage in, in, uh, EFT the way it's usually structured. And my reason for it is emotional, but it, it fits me. And that is, I don't like tapping. I don't like the idea of tapping myself mm -hmm. because to me, that's too close to the idea of hitting myself. So, oh yeah. Very gentle. So, so yeah. for me, it isn't so much tapping as, as it is touching. Not, you know, mm -hmm. tap, 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 but just simply touch. So the, the few times I've tried it, and I can't say I've spent a lot of time on this yet, but the few times I've tried it, I just touch the various meridian points. I don't tap okay. them. And that, that for me feels better than, than tapping. But Good. I guess it's basically the same thing. Right. Right. I mean, yeah, how about you? I mean, are, are you a tapper? Well, I've, I've done tapping for, I don't know, 15 years or 20 years. Um, I can't say I do it all the time. I do believe it's a really effective modality. I forget about it sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, I was I was managing a naturopath office for two PhD naturopaths, and they actually taught it to me because they used it in their practice occasionally, and they wanted me to learn it. So they put me through the whole course of learning for it. And at the time, it was so funny. At the time, the website for it, was one little page with a little information uh, about Gary Craig, the man that discovered it. And mm -hmm. that was it. And so I learned it. I used it. I taught it to my kids um, a little later than that. And then, you know, 10, 15 years later, um, one of my son's girlfriend at the time uh, did like a thesis on it in, in college. And then, you wow. know, like all these people. And I said, oh, and they were like, oh, my mom knows all about that. You know, and <laughs> then it started getting like people were talking about it. And I would say, oh, yeah, I know how to do this. I know all about this. So I got curious and I went to the website and I opened the website and there's like a, a, a quote from like or an endorsement, you know, from like Deepak Chopra or someone. And right. I was like, what? And it's like thousands of pages and all these people <laughs> and experiences. I was like, you've got to be kidding. It just sort of blew up. Yeah. Um, but one of the really cool things about it were was the um, that you can tap remotely for people. What does that so mean? In the, well, in the same way that you would like meditate for someone or pray someone for someone you can tap for someone like i could be tapping over here on your issues with you in mind to help you what what, what are you physically tapping on my meridian points so your meridian points can influence me then and there's there's stories that you hear a lot if you get into these you know groups or circles of people that are tapping and practitioners that use this um i actually it was really funny when i went through um well i had a son that had gone through a sort of traumatic event it wouldn't probably be traumatic for an adult but it was kind of traumatic for a child and so um i had taken him to see a therapist for a visit or a counselor 
who ended up telling me, oh, your son is like completely, he's got this. There is no problem. It's like, mm-hmm. okay. Um, but the therapist was taught, was going to teach us how to do tapping. <laughs> and he told us this. He said, I've been a therapist for 30 years. And mostly when I counsel someone, it would be anywhere from maybe 10 visits to years, you know, and he said, I never really never see any more, but more than once or twice now. Like they don't, they don't need to come back. So in other words, the, the tapping is making such a difference in their lives. They don't feel like That's, they need therapy anymore. Right. And so it was like, wow, really amazing to see the tapping coming up in all these different things. But the same son, when he grew up, he was uh, in his late teenager and college years, he was a professional cyclist. And so there, there are all kinds of things that you have to tend to when you're a professional cyclist, right? When you're in a race, mm-hmm. <laughs> all kinds of things that are important, like food and water and breathing and muscle cramps and like, you know, all, all these things. Right. And when he was in races where there would be laps, some of them there aren't, but mm-hmm. where he knew he was going to come by, you know, the, the crowd again and we would be there. If he was having some kind of struggle, he would take his pointer finger and he would tap it on his temple and look over at his brother. And his brother would start tapping for him. Really? <laughs> and he'd come around the next lap and give him the thumbs up. <laughs> ah, that's wild. And one day he sent us a message that he was out training on his bike way out in the country because where we live, it's relatively flat. And he was what's known in the cycling team sport as a climber. He was the climber. He climbs hills on his bike. So he would need to go, you know, train. I started to say rehearse. He would need to go (laughs) practice somewhere there were hills. And so he was out in a neighboring uh, city where there it's very hilly and out in the country riding and bees got in his helmet somehow. Oh, no. And were stinging him and he he got them out but he was like really suffering and trying to ride back to the car and everything and he he sent us a message what was happening and there was a group here we all just tapped for him (laughs) wow and what happened (laughs) and by the by the time he got back he said wow that was amazing like all the swelling started going away everything like i'm i'm good now oh my goodness (laughs) So I know it sounds really out there. It sounds really. Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) Um, But if you start reading stories about people that have used EFT remotely or even in a group, that's they they call it shared benefits. For instance, like if if you've got a group of people and you're all tapping on different situations, maybe today it's you know, you bring the situation and you say, oh, I'm really struggling with this particular issue. And so we tap on it for you. Then people in the group start reporting back that they had, you know, some kind of blessing in their life that affected that issue. Like, let's say it's money. It's like other people saying, yeah, I, I had a, an unexpected check come in after the tapping and we weren't even tapping for me. We were tapping for you. <laughs> or let's say it's, it's healing. People say, yeah, you know, I noticed that uh, my arthritis didn't give me any trouble all week after we tapped for your, you know, problem with the pain in your joints or whatever. It was just really funny. And you'll see that a lot. So it kind of reinforces the idea that there is a field an oh energy goodness, field yes. that surrounds all of us. And it suggests that this field is one that, basically not only connects to all of us, but messages get passed along it. That it yeah. be- made me, I don't know, there's a lot of ways I could possibly express this, I suppose, but basically there, there is a shared messaging system of some kind, and that messaging system happens through this tapping process. We're all connected. I, I know it's really, I can just imagine people saying, oh, I don't not know. <laughs> I'm not well, yeah, there's a part of me saying that. There's part of yeah, me saying, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Well, I did too. And that's what was so funny. And it might have been the reason that when I learned it at first, um, you know, I did a lot of other things and I learned a lot of other things in that medical practice. And so it's like this, it wasn't like I worked at a tapping center. You know? I mean, it's like, this was just something that they wanted me to learn. They thought it was great. Um, 
did I, I don't even know that I used it all that much working there. I just, they wanted me to know it and I did. Um, and maybe that's why it's like, there wasn't a lot of talk about it and you know, it was weird. Right. I mean, most people would look at it as, as very strange. And so that, I think that's why it was so funny that, you know, 10, 15, 20 years later, it, it's just a massive explosion of people using it and getting benefits from it. Mm. It's kind of amazing. But probably, it, it's probably been about 10 years since we used to use it when my son was cycling to help support him in his races. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was just the most fun. <laughs> just because you're doing it as a group? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would just really be. And I have to say, my son and his brother are, they are 18 months apart in age. And they've always been best friends their whole life. And even now that they're grown and they're in different cities and they don't connect like they did when they, of course, lived together or lived in the same city. They're still, when they are together, you can just, they're just very, very close. Mm. And they would tap for each other. And I, you know, when they were little, one time they were sitting at the breakfast table and they were probably five and six, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I was overhearing them have a conversation and they were saying, yeah. And what about that dinosaur? Oh yeah. That was really, really neat. I liked when we walked over to the other side of the water and then that big dog was there and I'm listening to them and they're just really excited about this experience. And I have no idea what they're talking about because I don't remember going anywhere where there was a big dog on the other side of a river. And I certainly don't remember a dinosaur. Yeah, That Um, would be rather memorable. I would think. Right. So I was like, what are you guys talking about? And and they both said at the same time, Oh, a dream we had last night. (laughs) (laughs) And my mind was totally blown. And I, I just acted really cool about it. It's like, Oh, you guys had the same dream? Uh-huh. You were both in the dream together? Uh-huh. Oh. How have you ever done that before? Yeah, we do it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's like I have a my sister has twins, identical twins, and I know there's a lot of things about like, they'll just know things about each other even when they're not around each other, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like that connection that connection is there and it's not just between twins or or people that are close to each other or siblings i mean it's humanity right we are we are a collective very interesting stuff no doubt about it so walt are you enjoying our conversation about walt lauren this morning about Walt uh, Lauren? Ralph, did I say Walt Lauren? <laughs> I was going to say, is that Ralph's brother? <laughs> yeah, actually, he does have brothers. I think it's so funny. I'm like, this was this was a fun conversation already, and we haven't even got into our. Yeah, uh, right. Well, I'll, I'll, I will tell you one thing before we even get into Ralph. Um, I mentioned earlier how I was experimenting with you know messaging and, and receiving messages from inside. Well, while you were talking there. I, as you were describing this communication thing going on, I, I some for some reason I, I thought to myself, well, I'm feeling really good right now. I know that's when you're supposed to do stuff when you're feeling good. Yes. I'm going to just try to send a message to my inner being and see what I get back. So I sent one message saying, are you there? And I got back, yes. And I thought to myself, well, did I really hear that or is that something that I just made up in my head? And I said, well, okay, let's try this. Let's try sending a message that is not a yes or no question and see what comes back. And so the question I sent out is, so what should I do next? And the answer that came back was, keep going. I said, okay. I'm not sure what to do with that, but that's interesting. Did I invent that one? I don't think I did. Maybe that is a real message. So I'm reporting perhaps I had a breakthrough here. I don't know. Excellent. I think you did. What I do know is that Ralph Lauren had a lot of breakthroughs. Like, Lots of them. <laughs> and his breakthroughs were really fascinating because of where he came from. Um, I mean, we, neither one of us were able to spend a lot of time doing research, but we both did some, and we found some fascinating stuff. Um, one of the most interesting things to me is that Ralph Lauren and Calvin Klein both grew up as Jewish children, immigrants, in the Bronx, New York. And they were, well, they were contemporary. They were contemporary. They, they are. They're, they're like three years apart. 
and, I don't know and, why, but I didn't realize that. Yeah, and, and of course, they're also fashion rivals. And in fact, much of the time throughout their tenure, they have been competing with each other in the fashion space. Um, Ralph is apparently more described as a traditionalist, and Calvin Klein is more of the experimenter, the, the, the true fashionista type. And Lauren is rejected by the fashionista type because he's just, you know, he's just recycling old ideas. It doesn't really, he's not really a creator or anything like that. You know, so there's all these little tensions that have gone on. And they've carried <laughs> to the point where Calvin Klein is now owned by uh, the Philip Van Heusen com company. And Van Heusen, in the last decade or so, started coming out with a, uh, a line whose purpose was to counter Ralph Lauren's line. So it continues even to this day, this rivalry that the two men have had over the years, That's which so, I think is fascinating. It is fascinating. And I, I, wanted, I didn't mean to just throw us over into uh, Ralph Lauren like that, I, but I thought it was funny. I looked at the clock. I was like, we are having this wonderful conversation know, yeah. <laughs> about EFT, and I'm not sure if people were, were uh, expecting something different. So I, I want to be sure that we... Um, Give, it, give people that may be listening live the number where they can chime in. Oh, yeah, sure. We should do our messages, shouldn't we? Um, yeah. the, the first one being if you want to call in. Uh, there are a lot of ways to do it through the Zoom platform and through both U.S. and international phone numbers. Um, they're all described on the homepage of the website at LOAToday.net. But if you're listening live right now and you're in the U.S. and you want to call in, the number to call is area code 646-876-9923. That's 646-876-9923. And then once you call in, the system will ask you for your access code. And the access code also sounds like a phone number. It's 860-264-5432. That's 860-264-5432. So that's how you can call in if you're listening live right now. Um, also, for people who are our longtime listeners, we we have an ongoing message to you guys. We're saying please post about us on your favorite social media and include the phrase uh, LOAToday.net in whatever it is that you post um, because we're finding that that is contributing to more and more people finding out about the podcast, and that's what we want. We want more people to be aware of it so that they can get their daily doses of happy too. And if you're new to the podcast, we want you to become one of the subscribers. Just, again, go to the homepage, LOAToday.net. All the instructions are there about how to do it. Um, if you're not somebody who uses the web very much, but you use your smartphone all the time, if you're on an iPhone, just go to your podcast software that's built in uh, with iOS and open it up. Use a little magnifier to do a search for LOA Today. You'll find it where you, where you can subscribe, and boom, you're there. Um, if you're on an Android phone, you, if you don't currently have some kind of podcast software in, installed, and most don't come with anything like that installed, you have to go find some. But, of course, you can do that through the Play Store. So just go to the Play Store, do a search for uh, some podcast management software, open it up once you install it, and uh, when, when you open it up, you can do a search for LOA Today, and you can subscribe that way. And then once you're subscribed, all of the shows come immediately and directly to your smartphone as soon as they're published. So please do become a subscriber if you're not already a subscriber. Please do talk about us on uh, social media if you haven't done that. Or if you have done it, uh, we like repeat uh, commenters. That helps too. And you know, feel free to call in because we'd love to have a, a chat with you and find out what you're thinking about Ralph Lauren or tapping or anything else. <laughs> right, we would. Maybe even and tapping on Ralph Lauren. You never really know. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. And then we hear in the news that some amazing thing <laughs> happened in Ralph Lauren's life. That would be something. Uh, yep. It's also it's already true that lots of amazing things happened uh, in and are probably still happening in Ralph Lauren's life. Mm -hmm. I, I know I, I told you before the show uh, when we were talking about the research that we had looked at that I really realized that I didn't know anything about Ralph Lauren at mm -hmm. all. Yeah. Um, I know I see him in the laundry pretty often, but uh, <laughs> but I really didn't know anything. Do, about doesn't that him. hurt when he gets flipped around in the dryer? I, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's fascinating to to realize the lives that people lead. I don't know. It's it. These biographies are really incredible. And just for anybody that's coming into this conversation, like what in the world is happening? First, they're talking about tapping. And now, Ralph Lauren, what in the world? <laughs> uh, if, you're, if you're a new listener, um, the reason why we started having these conversations about people is that we're particularly having conversations about wealthy people. 
um, to get to know them a little better because we realize that a lot of people have really bad stories about wealthy people. And I'm making those air quotes about mm -hmm. people that would fall into that category. Um, there's often a very us and them kind of mentality, like, oh, all those wealthy people. Right. And we talked about in the past about how um, sometimes, many times when you see uh, a movie, that it's the, the evil person in the movie, the bad guy in the movie is the rich guy that lives in the big mansion on the hill. And the hero of the movie is the poor struggling guy with no money. And we're all trying to work on our money stories and our relationship with money so that we have a better story about money and we don't hold it away from us because we don't want to be that evil rich person. Mm -hmm. So we thought, what better way than to start talking about well-known billionaires and millionaires and just getting to know them and seeing that they're just, they're just people like everyone else and that many of them, maybe the majority of them do a really a lot of good in the world. So that's where, where our whole concept started with talking about people that we might know their name, but we don't really know anything about them. Exactly. Yeah. And good. Well said, I might say. Um, interesting thing about Ralph Lauren is how he got started because he grew up, both he and Calvin Klein grew up in the Bronx and uh, Ralph's parents, they were Ashkenazi Jewish immigrants. So, I mean, very much marginalized people, so to speak. And yet that didn't stop him. He had his dream. And what was interesting is he, he was in the army, he came out of the army and worked briefly for Brooks Brothers. And then he becomes a salesman for a tie company. And believe it or not, that launched in his mind the idea of doing his own company, being a tie person. I mean, can you think of a, of a, a vocation that probably makes less money than being a tie salesman? <laughs> this is That's not funny. <laughs> this is not your typical rags to riches story. Oh, I'm going to be a tire salesman for the rest of my life. <laughs> well, when I read that, I had a big smile on my face because I have a cousin who worked in menswear for a long time um, and was really good at what she did. She was like the head of one of the menswear departments at one of the big stores. Um, and she at one time was considering... Uh, starting her own line of bow ties. Interesting. Uh-huh. And when I read this, I thought, well, what do you know? Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if she knows that that's how Ralph Lauren started. I wouldn't be surprised because yeah. people who are in the, the field, everybody knows everybody and everybody knows what everybody else is doing. That's the way it usually is in a field. And I'm, I'm sure that's true here as well. But the fact is, that's what that's how the Ralph Lauren Corporation started. It started with men's ties. Yeah. I mean, that, that's and just mind-blowing. <laughs> amazing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I thought one of the things that I thought was really interesting, um, because it tied into what we were talking about yesterday. Yesterday, we did the podcast on J.K. Rowling. Right. Um, which I'm being really conscious of pronouncing her name correctly. Me too now, yeah. Now that Not I realize I've been pronouncing it wrong all these years. Oh, geez. And I said last night, I was telling this story at dinner, and I said, R-O-W is pronounced row. Yeah, it is. Why do we say rowling? And it's that the, L because, because it's, it's like, like growl. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so J.K. Rowling, um, she mentioned that she liked to collect funny names and she also which we which is obvious from right from reading harry potter right all the all the names of the characters are so wonderful but she mentioned that on more than we read this short bio of her and she that she wrote herself and she mentioned it more than once in there that certain people she really liked their name because she didn't like her own because people made fun of her name right and they called her a rolling pin and they mm. called her rolling stone and right. rolling, rolling, rolling. Right. And Ralph Lauren actually had the same experience with people making fun of his name. No kidding. His birth name was Lipschitz. Yeah, that's a that's a rough one to go through school with. Right. And so he changed his name to Lauren. And I believe that. Now, he it said he's the third of four siblings and that. He had two that one of his brothers 
also changed his name, but the other brother didn't. Hmm. So I'm guessing the fourth sibling was a woman and that she must have been a sister and maybe she got married and changed her (laughs) name or didn't change her name, but they didn't mention her. They just mentioned the brothers. Hmm. So he too went through school being bullied and being made fun of um, about his name. And that's why he changed his name. That is interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Makes me wonder. And how I thought, wow, like then when I brought it up, the person I was talking to said they got made fun of for their name in school. And I was like, I can't even imagine anyone making fun of that name. I mean, <laughs> yes, I can hear that. Yeah. Rolling. Uh, rolling didn't seem like people would make fun of that. Um, it's like, wow, kids can really make fun of just about anything. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I I don't think we t- truly completely appreciate the impact that traditional schooling has on society. This is just one little aspect of something that we we don't even pay attention to where schools are concerned. But look at the impact that has come out of it. Well, I know that um, I know two people in my life, um, one that I met years ago, maybe 10 years ago, and then another one that's come into my uh, realm in the last few years and they're both, well, one of them I know is a coach. Uh, the other one might be a coach, but they both work with the whole, you know, bullying in mm-hmm. schools mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. And, you know, it was interesting because one time I I posed to a group that I was in, an online group, with a couple hundred people. I said, that if this is when I was just getting asked to start writing more, and I was getting the opportunities. I had different, you know, media outlets asking me to write for them. And I said, I'm going to be writing a lot more. Is there anything that, and it was a group of women. um, Is there anything that you'd like me to write about? And one person or two people said they wanted me to write about bullying in the workplace, um, adults getting bullied. And I thought, Mm. wow, it kind of blows my mind because I can't imagine bullying anyone. (laughs) But yeah, well, I, can't, so, I can't imagine you as a bully. I mean, that just wouldn't fit your personality. So I can understand why you wouldn't, you know, cotton to that particularly. But I can also see how bullying has taken place. I, I can recall times when people were bullied. Well, you said you, you told of, of being in school and really wanting to keep yourself to yourself because you didn't want to have that experience. Well, well, I, d- I told d- my it, story. It didn't mean that I didn't get the experience anyway. <laughs> Right. <laughs> just meant so I was, you, so I was trying have, to hide from it. <laughs> yeah. So you have firsthand experience with being bullied mm-hmm. as a kid in school. I have firsthand experience. And, you know, it's like I was pretty popular in school. I still had the experience of mm. being bullied. Yeah. Um, and and then we've got these two biographies, the first two we've done of J.K. Rowling and Ralph Lauren. And they were both bullied. Yeah. It's like this seems to be a universal. There is. Thing. There's a big pattern there. There's a very big pattern. And and I think ultimately bullying comes down to the fact that the bully feels powerless. So they're trying to exert power. And then their their victim also now feels powerless. So now powerlessness has been extended. And more and more people are becoming powerless. So now it, it, it becomes epidemic. So what mm. do people do? They grow up determined to retain their regain their power. They find ways to do it. Ralph Lauren did it by basically starting off with a tie company and building it into this huge brand where... You know, he—I mean, his goal, his goal with with Polo. Polo was his really big company, which he created a couple of years after he started his uh, tie company, and and Polo's main idea was to be a snob. <laughs> That's really what it was. <laughs> it was about helping average people be snobs, and and he—I <laughs> he, mean, that he he wanted them to wear clothing that would be snobbish clothing, so that they would feel like you know they're they're elite people or something like that. You know, like like they're part of the jet set. That was that was his dream behind it, and in the process of doing that, he ended up also creating clothing that early on was more expensive than I could afford, more expensive than most people could afford. It was aimed at a particular target. Over time, his associates convinced him to lower his pricing and expand it to a wider reach, and of course, that made him very wealthy. But interestingly enough, he resisted it every step of the way. I mean, I can't give you all the details because my reading was very cursory because literally I, this is like an hour's worth of research. But um, the book I was referencing this information from is a book by Michael Gross, who has written quite a bit in the fashion industry, 
called Genuine Authentic, The Real Life of Ralph Lauren. And, and he details in a number of different ways throughout the book how Lauren is, is a little bit, um, uh, what's, how do I want to describe it? He, he's taken up with his idea of the ideal image, and he gets really, really testy about anybody who challenges it. So even when people were coming along and suggesting, well, if you lower your price and expand your reach, you'll have more market. Yeah, he liked the more market, but he didn't like the fact that he had to do it by giving up on his idea. He, you know, he wanted yeah. his idea to be about it being elitist, about being snobbish. <laughs> and he, didn't, he, he wanted to keep that. He didn't want that to go away. So um, the, the takeaway I took from it is Abraham talks about how um, passion and, and you know, real strong, um, I forget how they describe it, but a, a real strong focus, you know, a determined, passionate focus can overcome negativity. And he has a lot of negativity in his life, but his determination, you know, his persistent, determined, you know, I, I am just so determined that my idea is going to come true. It just rode rampant over all of his own negative resistances that he had. I, and I think that's a really fascinating thing because so many of us, when we approach the law of attraction, we start to recognize all of our own resistances. And I, mm -hmm. I know in my case, probably many cases, we feel defeated by our resistances. Well, you don't have to be. If you have a big enough passion, you'll just blow right through them anyway. Well, and see, this is why I think it's so important to understand the difference between inspiration and motivation. Mm. Because inspiration is connected to passion. Yeah. Inspiration is that vision out in front of us that's, that we're so passionate about. We are going to get there, and it is pulling us towards it. Motivation is usually connected to a more negative thing that we're trying to get away from. Mm -hmm. And so to me, motivation can be tangled up a little more with resistance, okay. like what you're talking about. And we all have it, right? And motivation can serve us, but inspiration to me is so much more powerful. And so that's why I think because we all have resistances, because we all get attached to our own ideas. Um, I, I've been, for years, I was in the music business and worked with other people in bands where we wrote music together and i'm telling you i boy do i know that you know people want to change a song that you've written or mm -hmm. <laughs> and we can all get very attached to the way we thought it should be in the first place and so i get that um but i love that he had the passion to uh to get through those kind of spots right well, gross in his book uh, one of the pages that I flipped to had a little vignette type story uh, from when Lauren was in his late 20s, early 30s. He had just launched his companies. He was just he was getting to the point where he was kind of building up his line. And as so often happens in the fashion industry, he was going off on what they call a shopping trip, which is really just an opportunity to go see what the other designers are doing and see what you can steal or borrow or you know take for your own. Um, he he and an associate I can't remember what the associate's name was. Uh, hopped on a plane. It was it was Lauren's first time ever on a plane. Then they flew over to Europe, and he describes in detail what it was like for him to get on the plane in the first place. It's kind of comical, but uh, they get over to Europe, and I think they're in Rome, Italy, and they're walking down a street. And his associate says, see, sees this couple walking, and it's a young couple, and the woman is drop dead gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. And he turns to Ralph and says, "Wow, did you see her? Did you see how beautiful she was?" And Lauren says. No, but did you see the guy, the back of the guy's jacket? <laughs> <laughs> he was so fixated on the clothing, you didn't even see the woman. <laughs> <laughs> the cut of that jacket. The cut of that jacket was just, oh my God, did you see that? <laughs> well, you know, talking about him being enamored um, by clothes, I read this and it made me smile because we've talked about one of my favorite shows, a show you also really enjoy, Downton Abbey. Mm-hmm. Um, Ralph Lauren apparently became enamored by Downton Abbey. Oh, really? And, and created an entire fall collection that was inspired by inspired the show. By Downton Abbey, wow! <laughs> and then he sponsored Downton Abbey's final season in 2016. Ah, okay. okay. And that's an interesting thing because we talked about that as well as about all the ways that. Wealthy people sponsoring things 
affects us. That's true. That I, I never really recognized until we started having these discussions. And then my eyes started opening and I started recognizing even here in my city, you know, the organizations that do things in the city that are mainly sponsored by people that have wealth that are giving back. And it's like the, all the trees that are planted by Baton Rouge Green um, and all the things that are done by certain foundations here. That's like, this affects my life. It's it. I enjoy these things because people were willing to, to sponsor them and support them and donate to them and, and give back. And so I think it's really important to recognize that as well. And I like, I want to do that. Sure. Yeah. I want to be now the, I guess looking at the in 2015, I think Polo was made Lauren one of the 200 richest people in the world. Mm -hmm. I don't have I've never had that kind of aspiration. And then I asked myself, why? You know, like, do you hear that in my voice? Like people's like, well, I, I mean, I don't want to be that rich. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's like, oh, interesting. Why not? what story do I have about the trouble that would cause in my life? Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I, basically that's it. When we are holding ourselves away from anything, there is some kind of backstory usually that it's going to cause some kind of trouble in our life. Well, interesting note from that energy session I had with Linda Armstrong last Friday during the podcast, she and I were talking about the session. And one of the things that came up during the session was she asked she asked me a series of questions that I answered using a muscle testing uh, technique that that she uses, and mm -hmm. one of the questions was something like, uh, "Am I afraid that if I have money, I will be killed?" And my body answered yes, which was a shock to me because I had no idea I had any kind of fear of being killed for having money, but I also mm -hmm. recognized, boy, if that if that's really in there, that would explain that would explain a lot. You know? Yeah. No kidding. So, I mean, <laughs> here's the suggestion then. The suggestion is I could have something going on inside me and I don't even know what it is. I didn't even know it was there. Well, that makes sense to me only because that the part of our brain that is subconscious is huge. I mean, physically, 85% mm. of our brain is you know, the reptilian brain and the mammalian brain, the two oldest parts of our brain, and they they operate alone on emotion. Mm. And so what emotions come up about someone's going to kill me? Yeah, right. <laughs> right? That's a big no. <laughs> Don't want to go there. But how could I even not, not even know about it? That's the part that blows my mind. Like, how could I possibly not even be aware of that? On some level, yeah. I would think I would be aware of that on some level. Right. Well, I was going to say, well, you do know, actually. I guess, right? apparently, yeah. Yeah. But it's the awareness. Yeah. We don't always have an awareness. And it's like those decisions, you know, people use the word sabotage, self-sabotage. And I always come back with, well, I don't think we sabotage ourselves. We just protect ourselves. That's a good point. It's, it's protection. I'm not, nothing that... Nothing that I'm doing, no decisions that I'm making are trying to sabotage me. They're just trying to protect me. Mm -hmm. And they may be trying to protect me from something that's completely harmless because I don't understand that. You know, it's just like when when our parents tell us when we're young, you know, not to talk to strangers. Uh, we That's only good for a certain amount of time. And then it expires because we need to be able to talk to strangers <laughs> most of true. our life yeah. to have any kind of social life or any kind of opportunities. We're going to have to do that. And so, but sometimes those messages get ingrained in us. You know, who I, I ask myself the same question. I'm like, why did, why would I ever think that? Well, probably some story you heard as a very small child or some movie you saw or something that caused you to draw the conclusion that ooh if you're you know if you have a lot of money you're in danger your life's in danger oh most likely yeah yeah i mean cuz like you said we often don't even know what the the sources of these different things are that that pop up um occasionally we do know i mean like for instance 
I can tell you that I had, you, you, you talked about don't talk to strangers, right? Well, I had a direct experience with a stranger as a young child that I didn't even have to be ta- told that. It became part of my, my thought process. Because there was one day when I was roughly, oh, geez, I'm going to say, I don't know, seven or eight years old. And I walked to school. We were we lived probably about, I don't know, a quarter mile from the school. And maybe, maybe a little bit longer than that. But anyway, I'm, I'm walking along the street and a car pulls up next to me. And a man leans out the window and offers me like ice cream or something like that. And my, my physical reaction was to withdraw. I mean, everything just felt bad about it. I didn't understand why it felt bad. You know, I'm a young kid. All I knew was that it felt bad. And one way or another, I turned him down, and he didn't press the issue, and he drove off. But I told my mom about it, and of course, that led to other conversations and so forth. Bottom line was, now I had a fear of strangers. Mm. Mm. Right? And yeah. that, that did carry over, because that combined with my experience in school with you know a variety of things that led me to kind of withdraw. Well, I became a very withdrawn person. Mm-hmm. So there, I mean, there's one of those rare situations where I can actually point to it. I can say, yep, there's a seminal event. I know that one. But how many of them are there that we don't know about, that we just aren't even aware of? Oh, yeah. Lots. Yeah. And I don't even think, you know, like you had a very real experience. This mm-hmm. actually happened in right. your life where right. you were walking to school. But how many of those messages come to us from things that aren't even real, like movies and stories? Yeah. Well, and yeah, that know. too also, yeah. Oof. Right. I mean, that's the thing. That's why I always bring up the idea and I, I don't take credit for it. I mean, I had a sales trainer that was trying to, you know, get her sales team to be have better money stories and better relationship with money so they wouldn't mm. be afraid to make sales. Right. And she said, have you haven't you ever noticed that the movies often show the rich person is the bad guy and the hero? That's where you got that. OK, guy. yeah, sure. Oh. And then, of course, it was really amazing because that reticular activation, you know, once, once you know about something, then you, you see it everywhere. It. That's right. Every movie I watched after that had like the evil rich person and the hero was a poor guy, you know, yep. even cartoons like Aladdin, right? He was a street rat, right? He's like, he had nothing. He was the hero. Um, or or even noticed- if there was a, a movie that featured on a, a wealthy person, there was always enough of a twist in it that our minds would turn it into the unethical evil person. Yeah. So I started saying, oh, my goodness, it is everywhere. And when you think about that, most of our um, our beliefs that kind of run our life, most of those, many of those were completely set. We'd, we'd made those set points and those beliefs by the time we're seven. Mm. Yeah. Um, and some of them are, you know, we, we grow up in pretty small communities most of us right from Mm -hmm. the time we're seven yeah i mean we may have only been in a classroom for a few years most of the time we're at home we have parents and a few people around us i mean in the scope of how many people we'll interact with in our whole life it's pretty small when you're just looking at from like up to seven years old and so whatever stories we hear we we make rules according to those stories. That's why I always tell that story about the guy that said when he was like in kindergarten and first grade, his grandfather would drive him to school every day and they had to wind through a very rich neighborhood. And the whole time his grandfather would say, Oh, look at these idiots with these huge expensive houses. Who would want to have a house that big? It's so much to take care of. You'd never want that. That's ridiculous. And look at those big cars. Who would spend that much money on a car? What a waste of money, Mm -hmm. you know? And so, we all hear things like this oh, when yeah. we're little and who knows what you heard or saw to make you think, Ooh, yeah, I'll, I'll be safer mm-hmm. if I don't have a lot of money. Yeah. Clearly there was some sort of connection that went on there. Because remember that, that our reptilian brain that calls most of the shots, it really, I like to say it's a squirrel brain because it's at the base of our skull and it's about the size of what you would imagine a squirrel brain would be. Okay. And a squirrel's only concerned about three things. It's concerned about staying safe from the dog that's chasing it. It's concerned about finding some more nuts and it's concerned about making baby squirrels. That's about it. So keeping our lineage going 
making sure we have something to eat and making sure we stay safe. That's that part of the brain's responsibility. And often it does it by keeping us wherever we are now, because we survived this yesterday, even if it's poverty, even if it's a bad relationship, even if it's a terrible job we hate, we know we survived it. That's what, so, that's what makes the whole story of the wealthy people so interesting. We're talking about Ralph Lauren today, right? Well, right. Ralph Lauren, when he was coming up, so to speak, I mean, he'd established his tie company, he'd established his polo line. And from that point on, every single time, this is a theme that shows up in the gross book, uh, every single time that he came upon another idea, often one that was given to him by somebody in his circles about you know the next thing to, to expand into, they would give him an idea of X, and in his mind, he would take it to X squared. He would have a bigger ver- vision of it than they would have themselves, mm. which is a different kind of approach. I mean, most of us, like we were just describing how uh, most of us are driven and controlled and, and influenced by the negatives going on in our subconscious minds. He would take negatives and turn them into to gigantic positives. Well, and this is why practice is so important. Yes. Right. Because I'm looking at Ralph Lauren's life and looking at the fact that, you know, he grew up, he did not grow up in a wealthy family. Um, He grew up, you know, with his family escaping Belarus and, you know, he was bullied at school as a kid, but what does he do? He goes to work for Bo Brummel, Mm -hmm. the tie company, and then he starts designing his own ties right and he sees some success with it and i think that the more this happens the more we stretch out and branch out and and follow our inspiration and have success then it's like we get a little more comfortable with following inspiration and by the way for, for people it who feels are not, good to do it it does and for people who are not aware of it Ralph Lauren's big contribution to ties was wide ties. He's the one who widened <laughs> ties. Before that, ties were all skinny. Think of the, think the Beatles. The Beatles had the thin ties, right? Right, right. That was the style at the time. That's what Bo Brummel sold. That's what everybody sold. He widened the ties. I mean, that's like this little stupid thing, widening the ties. And that, that started the beginning of his fortune. But it's really kind of groundbreaking, right? It is. Because when everyone is doing a certain thing, a certain way. And someone has the inspiration to go to color outside the line, so to speak, right. To, to do it differently and then has success. I mean, I can see how that would begin to be a pattern of a way of being like, that's who he was. And to tie it into he what is. we were talking about. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Yeah, he's still alive. He's still going <laughs> strong. Yeah, and to tie it into what we were talking about a moment ago, where we were talking about the different ways that we're influenced by being bullied and all this other kind of stuff. He took, well, <clears throat> first, yeah, you have to know he is your, quote, typical little Jewish man, unquote. He, he's small of stature. Um, by most accounts, he's not terribly good looking, although I don't think he's all that bad looking. But what do I know? I'm... I'm not attracted to men anyway, but uh, he, he's just not, he's not a sex symbol by any stretch of the imagination. He, he, if you saw him on the street, you wouldn't, you wouldn't even look at him. And he was affected by this because to him, it was all about, you know, being snobbish, about being dressed in such a way that they can't possibly ignore you. So he took what many of us would have considered to be a disadvantage of feeling not good about himself, about how he looked, about how he carried himself, about how he appeared to others, and said, you know what, I'm going to dress myself up in a way that everybody's going to notice, not just me, but everybody else who, who buys my clothes. He turned a negative into a huge positive. Well, it's interesting, the idea that that stereotypical thing that I can't vouch for, I have to, I'm going to stand here and defend all the... Um, gorgeous, handsome Jewish men. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, there you go. (laughs) Um, And I think that the idea of doing something differently, that that is scary to a lot of us. But it is. But he did it over and over and still does it, even though, like you were saying, he he is known for the one that stays very classic. 
Yes, very traditional. You were talking, right, very traditional. Um, but even even so, we can look and see that his first move was to take something that was very traditional and make it something completely different, like make with the wider tie. Oh, yeah. So even within his kind of classic, preppy, vintage, traditional kind of looks, he still has his own flair that he adds there. And he's not afraid to do it. He's so, not. No. Yeah. And he has a good eye. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I don't know how good his eye was when he first got started, but it certainly has developed at the very least over the years to the point where, you know, the other people, the fashionistas may not approve of his stuff because it's so traditionalist, but boy, does he know how to tap into uh, what they call the zeitgeist of, you know, the average typical male who wants to buy these products because they bought his stuff. They liked his stuff. His stuff resonated with him in a way that the fashionista stuff never did. Well, and he has, you know, expanded his brand to include so many more things. Yeah, because he's long beyond men's clothing, men's, women's I mean, clothing, children's, women's, all kinds of stuff. Home furnishings? Home furnishings, yeah, yeah. All kinds of things. So, you know, there's that aesthetic that he has that people really like, and it would make sense that it would flow over into other areas. So, you know, you can say that there's that competition between the fashionistas and people that are more traditional, but it looks like the people that like the more traditional styles that he puts out are willing to pay for them. So he's made a big success. By the way, it, it, another interesting story that came out of the book that I wanted to share. Um, men may not realize this, but the jackets, the Ralph Lauren jackets that men buy, um, Many of them were influenced by waiters' uniforms, <laughs> because it That's turns funny. out on one of his trips again in Europe, I think it was the same trip actually that I was talking about earlier. Um, he and a friend were at a restaurant, and the waiter was dressed like so many waiters are around the world. He was wearing a, a, a nicely tailored white jacket, you know, the, the, the maitre d look really more than anything else, and. Lauren was so taken by it that he insisted on buying the man's jacket right then and there. He paid him for his jacket, took the jacket off of his back so he could bring it with him <laughs> back to New York and use it as a basis for some of his designs going forward. So Ralph Lauren based his designs on a waiter's jacket. <laughs> I think that's great. Isn't that something? I love, yeah, I love that eye of being able to just see anything and say that's it and not be swayed by that it was a waiter's jacket, but it's just he liked it. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, Lauren is very well known for um, treating the uh, the fashionistas the way the fashionistas treat him. They they snob him, they they, they snub him, they they just you know ignore him, and he does the same thing to them. He thinks they're full of it, <laughs> <laughs> which is really really funny because now he's in a sense he is a fashionista because he has such a big influence in the world of fashion. But uh, nope, in, in in the official world of the fashionistas. He is not part of the of the club. He's outside the club, and he likes it there. <laughs> that's that's so funny. And you know what we didn't talk about really at all. And we're I see that we're yeah we're running almost out of time. winding up here. We didn't even talk about philanthropy. Oh God, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I've enjoyed getting to know a little bit more about uh, Ralph Lauren today. He, he did have one interesting quote in the Wikipedia article. He says, "I hate when people call me philanthropic." Because I see it as more coming from the heart. It makes me wonder, what's his definition of philanthropic? I'm really curious. Because he doesn't have a good one, that's for sure. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Oh, that's really interesting. Because, you know, it's almost like the way I always say the air quotes around wealthy people. Right? Yeah. Well, he, mu he must have this idea of I think so. philanthropists. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, interesting. So he gives from the heart. That's good to know. Well, it is good to know. Yeah, he, he is a genuine human being. He he is a he is like any other human. He has his strengths. He has his flaws. But he took his strengths and really accentuated them. And look what happened. So that that I think is the big takeaway from Ralph Lauren. <laughs> Love it. So let's see what are we going to do this afternoon. We'll have to figure out who we're going to focus on this afternoon. But we'll come up with somebody. That's for sure. You're going to be here, right? I'm going to be here this afternoon. Okay, good. And we'll see you all next time and every time here on LOA Today. Goodbye, everybody.